I've never been a con artist. <laughs> I assume that's what you do. <laughs> I don't know how they live. Yeah, I don't, I'm not here to judge. I mean, I am, but yeah. <laughs> theft is wrong. Thank you, thank you for that strong moral stance. <laughs> I'm just well. I mean, like, admittedly, none of none of the people he's stealing from are particularly sympathetic. <laughs> I, don't, I mean, I don't feel bad for them, but is this okay? No, but like, do I feel bad for them? Not really. No, no, they were fucking idiots. <laughs> That's therefore we land on. It's funny. Yeah, it's hilarious. Everyone here is an asshole. <laughs> Oui, c'est vrai. Je suis un ananas. Now, in the uh, towers of uh, Edmonton... I'm not a Tourette. Don't speak on both sides. I do not use crack cocaine, nor am I an addict. Welcome back to Histories and Mysteries. I'm Jessica. And I'm still Janelle. Uh, and today we're discussing one of my favorite subjects, which is con artists. Uh, specifically, uh, yeah, love them. Uh, specifically, just getting some variety. Victor, some roughage. Actually, no, this is straight up candy. <laughs> uh, specifically, we're talking about <laughs> Victor Lustig, otherwise known as the man who sold the Eiffel Tower. Uh, but before I tell you everything else little little Vicky Lustig did, first I'm going to tell you what he looked like, because I'm shallow like that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> if, if it's being mentioned on this podcast, it's, it's, inter- it's bad. I, I mean. I promise you it's relevant. It is plot relevant okay. to this man's life what he looked like. Because Lustig <laughs> wore well-tailored suits, dress shoes, and a Homburg hat which is a felt hat similar to a bowler that was fashionable at the time. You might see pictures of Prime Minister Winston Churchill wearing one. Uh, He carried a stylish walking cane and altogether dressed with a carefully understated sophistication. Lustig was handsome and charismatic, but in a soft-spoken way, as to build confidence and avoid drawing the wrong sort of attention. I'm just imagining that everywhere he goes, like, putting on the Ritz softly plays in the background. He spoke five languages fluently, allowing him to easily move from country to country, and was likewise a master of imitation and disguise. However, he had one feature that couldn't help but stand out. That being a large, livid scar across the left side of his face, spanning from his temple to the bottom of his ear, which he acquired as a young man when, while briefly attending university in Paris, he offended a jealous boyfriend by flirting with a young woman at a bar. An inconvenient physical trait for a man in his profession. If you're trying to, like, plan for a life in disguise, like, try not to get any large, noticeable facial scars. I mean, try not to get any large, like, noticeable facial scars. It's generally good life Usually. advice, but... I mean, I'm not here to it's judge. It's especially relevant for you. It, it's, the, <laughs> it's the number one profession where you most don't want people looking at you too closely. Like, you want to look not necessarily handsome, but kind of like that generic sort of face where, like, people describe you as handsome for lack of any other defining features. That's kind of where you want to be at. <laughs> You want to be real forgettable. Yeah, like, you don't want to look like you had an accident where someone tried to take your face off with a can opener. 
<laughs> I mean, that is generally true in all professions. Yeah, I mean, like, that's probably just something you don't want if you're going to the grocery store. <laughs> like... <laughs> no, nobody's like, all right, I'm going to be an accountant, which means I need a face like someone went at it with a hatchet. Like, no. Yeah. Like, <laughs> um, unless you are literally the leader of, like, a clan of cannibals or a pirate ship, that's not useful in your line of work. <laughs> not many not many professions uh, will you benefit professionally by having a large noticeable facial scar that you got in a bar fight that's typically not yeah not what you put on a resume no don't put your bar fights on your resumes that's the lesson here uh, an unnamed secret service agent later described listig as both despicable and inexplicably seductive quote as elusive as a puff of cigarette smoke and as charming as a young girl's dream that's so vivid. Oh, and it's unbelievably gay. <laughs> it's the most homoerotic shit. I just, what do you even do with that police description? Like, how do you present <laughs> that in court? Can you imagine, like, going to court? Put that in front of a judge? <laughs> it's a very, ser a very serious crime. And you're like, I've, I've, I've chosen a career for myself where reading police reports is a regular part of my daily life, whether I want it to be or not. And they're always, like, very factual. It's like, officer arrived on the scene at 5.08 p.m. Officer observed Janelle was having a bad day. Like, they're always very factual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, this was indicated by the fact that she was crying on the front steps of her workplace. Like, that's... <laughs> that's where they're at. Yeah, so yeah, just yeah. imagine being in court and, like, the police officers are reading out this official report and it's just like, you know, she had a laugh that carried, like, smoke over the water on a calm night. Like, what do you do with that information? <laughs> The suspect was described as having sensual lips and a gaze that could pierce your soul from across the room. <laughs> like, what the fuck? <laughs> uh, was also missing an arm. <laughs> like, let's prioritize here. Yeah, it's 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 evocative. It's vivid. It's it's more than a little gay. It and like that's the thing is like he had to hand that to his boss, <laughs> and it's just like, <laughs> hey Frank, question: Do you need to talk? <laughs> What's going on with you? <laughs> I want to find this man, and when I find him, I want to make sweet, sweet, generous love to him. Lustig had at least forty-five different aliases, many with intricate backstories. And to be honest, I'm not 100% sure that Lustig was indeed his original name. It is a genuine surname, uh, but it's also the German word for funny or amusing, uh, specifically in the sense of, like, he's making fun of me. Um, so, <laughs> take of that what you will. It's too many identities to keep straight. Yeah. I mean, like, I can barely keep one identity together. Somebody asked me my social security number, and I'm just like, wait, what year is it? I don't know. <laughs> Who am I? <laughs> What's happening? I frequently forget basic facts about my own life. Sometimes I'll just accidentally mislead people about a, a really basic fact about me. I don't know, like when I was born, my religion, something like that. And then I, I won't know where to go from there. <laughs> like I, I just end up stuck with this person <laughs> like thinking I'm Hindu for the rest of my life and I just have to go with it. How how do you one how do you end up in these situations, Jessica? Where you're like, am I Hindu? Probably that seems correct to me. That feels right. <laughs> but but I do I do genuinely have a problem where I just have a very Jewy personality. I would say, um, 
<laughs> so, like, I'll do things like reference not really liking Christmas, and, like, people will be like, confirmed, locked in. <laughs> I figured out what it is. <laughs> and no, I just don't like Christmas. <laughs> like, <laughs> Everybody calm down. She's yeah, just we figured it we've out. solved it. And it's like, oh no, there's so much there's more going so on. More. <laughs> Incorrect. One, racist. Two, no. Because like sometimes, <laughs> sometimes I'll just reference facts about another culture with like a level of confidence that I really shouldn't. <laughs> and then people will make assumptions and then I won't know what to do about it. Because like they'll be really nice about it. They're just like, well, she, she knows when Yom Kippur is. There's only one option here. And, and here's the thing. Like, I do know a weird amount, amount about cultures. Like, I have really no reason to know anything about. Like, the other day I was watching a nature documentary about giraffes. And they're like, the giraffe has cloven hooves and, and, and chews cud. And I'm like, giraffes are kosher? <laughs> <laughs> what a horrible question yeah. that I bet any, like, rabbi would happily answer for you. <laughs> oh, I, I looked it up. They, a hundred percent, rabbis have made a statement about this. Giraffes are kosher. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is a piece of information that will live in my brain forever, even though I have absolutely no use None. for it. I am, I am not Jewish. I do not keep kosher, and I have very few opportunities to eat a giraffe. <laughs> so I really, but it's, it's just gonna haunt uh, me. It's just gonna, <laughs> giraffes are it's kosher. It's just gonna linger if, in the back of my properly, mind. If properly, yeah. Naturally. Yeah, they have to be properly you'd have butchered. To, you'd have to get the giraffe to a kosher butcher. Yes. There's more to this than just, like, hit it with a rock and now we're good. There like, are some additional complications, but you could make ch- kosher giraffe. Yeah. Um. <laughs> what a useless piece of information to know forever. See, on the other end of the spectrum is my partner who grew up in a Jewish household but is bad at it because he's not really Jew-ish. He's Jew-ish, Yeah. He was home for Rosh Hashanah, and I was just like, oh, like, what is that holiday? What's that about? He's like, I don't know, but I gotta go eat a pomegranate. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you (laughs) for this helpful tour of your culture. (laughs) Wonderful. How enlightening. Fascinating. (laughs) It's like, I don't know. I just gotta. We just gotta eat a pomegranate. (laughs) I love the cultural sharing that is this relationship. He doesn't even know why he's doing it. He's <laughs> It's just a thing he's got to do. Uh, but m- most of the information on Lustig's early life came from Lustig himself. Ah. <laughs> uh, and much of it is contradictory. Uh, seeming to change depending on whether he wanted to impress or elicit sympathy. Claiming alternately to come from wealthy, successful merchants or abject poverty. There's a reliable source of information right there. Just anything he says. He's a professional liar. We we don't necessarily take any of his biographical information at face value. We don't take his word for it. I don't know. He seems trustworthy. I, I you know, like I I've heard he I've heard he's as seductive as a young girl's dream. Like, <laughs> but, but, but yes, officer, that was very clear. Like, yeah, even his death certificate lists him not as Victor Lustig, but as Robert V. Miller. Who the fuck is that? So. I no idea. <laughs> Lustig was probably bo- probably born in 1890 in Bohemia, which was then part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. It is now the Czech Republic, though due to the complicated events of the 20th century, it had three other different iterations in between. Could literally be an entire podcast on its own. 
Not like an episode of a podcast. Could literally be an entire podcast by itself. And it, it would be a fascinating arc. Um, <laughs> but I have controlled myself. I have shown restraint and we shall not be discussing it. I was going to say, you're showing an <laughs> incredible restraint by not launching into a four hour summary of the events. And I'm like, all right, so communism. <laughs> I mean, which of course comes after Nazi Germany, which of course comes after the Austro-Hungarian, which of course comes after the Kingdom of Bohemia. But like, it's not important to this story. <laughs> Needless to say, he was born in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And through the course of his life, it became two other things. This happened a lot. <laughs> it, was, it, was the, it was the soccer ball of Europe. I thought you were just pausing it. He was born. <laughs> That's it. He was. That's what we he know. Was probably born. That we can say for sure. <laughs> I feel. I feel good about that. Yeah, I'm. I'm willing to go out on a limb. But uh, <laughs> he was apparently bright from a young age and quickly learned how to manipulate and exploit sympathy. Uh, oh. As a young man, he studied foreign languages, history, philosophy, psychology, and rhetoric. He likewise began to associate with all rungs of society, from high-class music halls to seedy gambling dens. Uh, over the course of his extensive career, the world of prestige and power and that of crime and exploitation were deeply intertwined more often than not. I do like that somebody designed, like, the ultimate, like, crime lord's curriculum for this kid. They're like, alright, let's, let's teach him how to be real manipulative in French. Like... <laughs> <laughs> You know what he needs? Uh, he needs the majority of languages spoken in the Western world in just a complete vacuum where his soul should be. <laughs> it's a good combination. He's perfect. He had always had a tendency towards theft, even as a child. But as an adult, he graduated rapidly from panhandling to pickpocketing, burglary, and street hustles in order to pay for his gambling. Uh, Lustig's early life coincides with several decades of prosperity and decadence in Europe prior to the onset of World War I, known as La Belle Epoque, roughly equivalent to what North American listeners might know as the Gilded Age, where technological and scientific advances led to a euphoric cultural boom among the middle to upper classes, though the poor were often left behind. As they usually are. <laughs> Just like ten years of rich people just, like, dancing on Germany's grave. It's fine, that doesn't come back to bite them at all. There's no way that pissing into Germany's open wounds ever causes anything to fester. <laughs> Lustig, obsessed with glamour and wealth, was determined to keep up, and that meant a developing a level of self-control and moving beyond the petty swindling of his youth to far grander schemes. Lustig began traveling on luxury transatlantic ocean liners, which, as anyone who watched Titanic will know, were grandiose, lavish affairs styled after the mansions of the aristocracy, so long as you avoided the third-class berth. Uh, this was less for the benefit of true aristocrats, and more so for the growing class of nouveau riche, obsessed with the appearance of wealth. This kind of large, closed, and anonymous environment with round-the-clock alcohol, entertainment, and gambling was likewise the perfect environment for a con artist like Lustig to find easy, unsuspecting marks. I like that it's just like rich person daycare. We just keep them in the lobby, we get them some drinks, they're happy, they're fine, they're interacting. Just having a gin and tonic out of a sippy cup? <laughs> <laughs> I could see it. Uh, Lustig had a particular approach to gaining the confidence of his targets. 
A small list of rules, typically attributed to Listy, is known as the Ten Commandments for con men. One, be a patient listener. It is this, not fast talking, that gets a con man his coups. Two, never look bored. Three, wait for the other person to reveal any political opinions that agree with them. Four, let the other person reveal religious views, then have the same ones. Five, hint at sex talk, but don't follow it up unless the other person shows a strong interest. Six, never discuss illness unless some special concern is shown. Seven, never pry into a person's personal circumstances. They'll tell you all eventually. Eight, never boast. Just let your importance be quietly obvious. Nine, never be untidy. Ten, never get drunk. Lustig would typically begin by approaching a market. Uh, he would not speak with them, but rather set himself up at a nearby table, where he would attract attention by performing a few modest card tricks and allow his quarry to come to him. He would aim to come across as intelligent but well-mannered and modest, complimentary but never sycophantic. He'd avoid talking too much about himself or his invented backstory, but when asked about his profession, he would respond that he was a Broadway producer one with quite the impressive portfolio. Eventually, he would lure them into investing in one of his supposed productions. Hmm. No drunkenness. Listen, you know, it's a pretty solid set of rules if the end goal isn't to, like, convince people to give you their life savings in exchange for the Eiffel Tower. Yeah, yeah, if you weren't immediately planning on robbing them, it, it'd be great advice for, like, you know, how to, how to deal with difficult customers. <laughs> uh, Lustig was careful to heavily research his aliases, which is part of why his portrayal of a famous Broadway producer was so convincing. Also because they don't have phones and they have no ability to look them up. He was helped in part by his connection to an early criminal associate, American con man Nicky Arnstein, who happened to be the second husband of famous comedian and performer Fanny Bryce. You probably don't know Bryce, uh, but if you're one of our older listeners, you, or if you have like a real obsession with early 20th century musical theater. Like bordering on unhealthy. Like, like well into unhealthy. Like extreme. Uh, you might know Bryce from her portrayal by Barbara Streisand in the 1964 musical Funny Girl. Uh, Arnstein was likewise an alkalite of one of the royalty of early 20th century American crime mobster Arnold Rothstein, who he introduced to Lustig. Lustig spent a year under Arnstein's tutelage, admiring the ease with which he skillfully and peaceably relieved the wealthy of their money, including one particularly brazen incident where Arnstein confided his true profession to a mark, that he was, in fact, a con artist and swindler. Said Mark then hounded Arnstein for a gambling match, which Arnstein refused repeatedly before finally conceding on the final evening of the voyage and depriving his target of around $30,000 with no opportunity for a rematch. Oh, I mean, it's clever, but I feel bad. It hardly seems very sporting. It's, it's one of those things where the main thing they're doing is getting the person involved in foolishness or complicity in a scheme in order to make them either look silly or complicit, which makes them less likely to go to the police. I mean, yeah, who wants to, like, who, one, who wants to call the police in a world where the police write descriptions like, you know, she had eyes like two shadows of the moon on the still waters of the clear lake. Who's going to those police? They're fucking weird. And two, 
who wants to show up and be like, oh, yes, yeah, so I did aid and abet this. This I was fully aware that this was happening. Oh, what, what was happening? Uh, I got approached by a man who told me he was a con artist and asked me to engage in this particular scheme of brazen illegality, and I did, and then he robbed me. Like, who, who wants... <laughs> I don't want to be known for that. I don't want to end up in the news. I don't want to look a police officer in the eye and say that shit. Like, <laughs> who would? <laughs> Nobody does. We all just want to go home. Uh, when World War I broke out and the luxury cruise industry suddenly became extremely unpopular, mm. Lustig's grift came to an end. He spent some time in Europe under the employment of a local gambling syndicate. This ended likewise abruptly when the syndicate found out he had been skimming their profits. Oh, some light embezzlement. Uh, he managed to escape with the help of his talent for disguises and hopped onto a ship bound for the United States. Uh, at the end of the war, Lustig was in New York City, which was about to have another boom in prosperity in the form of the Roaring Twenties, uh, and uh, likewise a uh, boom in organized crime, thanks to the massive underground trade in illicit booze, thanks to the nationwide, nationwide prohibition of alcohol. Um, I hate it when that happens. That was, that was a bad idea. Oh, man. I, that, that's another podcast series in of itself, but needless to say, prohibition... Uh, where you get rid of all of the uh, legal supply of a heavily addictive substance, but you don't, and this is funny, you don't get rid of the demand for that substance, uh, usually just funnels tons of money into the hands of criminals. So that that is fun. Funny how that works. Amazing. Wow. Turns out the alcohol didn't go away. It just got more dangerous and more potent. And uh, directly in their hands. Of dangerous people. This is also where he starts referring to himself as Count Victor Lustig, nobility of the former kingdom of Bohemia, as a way of securing himself a higher class of friend. To naive Americans, his nuanced understanding of his home country's culture and politics, as well as his refined manners, was confirmation enough that he was a bona fide aristocrat. <laughs> you just have to look fancy. Uh, Lustig traveled from city to city, making friends everywhere. It was at this time that he met his wife, Roberta Norrit, a beautiful socialite with a rough childhood, attracted to his worldly sophistication and roguish charm. He met her at a gala where she abandoned her date for him because he learned exactly nothing from that time he got stabbed in the face. Um. <laughs> Second time's the charm. <laughs> It's like the third time. There's another incident where he just gets punched. <laughs> he's a slow learner. Say what you will about his other skills, but he's a slow. He's got to learn it in all five languages. That takes time. I know. You know, it, he has to duplicate it. You know, it's it, there are cultural nuances to how people are gonna fuck you up if you try to steal a girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they married after only a few months of acquaintance in November 1919. Uh, he didn't really tell Norrit, who he called Buckle, that he was a con man. Uh, he just sort of hinted. And uh, rather than question the secrecy, she quickly became deeply enmeshed in his schemes as he used her as a prop to validate his backstories. Oh, this can only be going in a healthy direction. Oh, yes. Uh, she even spent considerable time researching their aliases, avoid slipping up and embarrassing her new husband. Oh. The relationship was passionate but deeply tumultuous, in no small part due to Lustig's infidelity and Norit's jealous rages 
which included one incident where she attempted to run him over in a car. When the couple's toddler, who was also in the vehicle, asked why her mother was chasing her father, uh, Nora responded that they were just playing tagged and fucking floored it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I mean, that's certainly one way to handle it. I don't. Healthy. I don't know that as a as a mental health professional, that's like my first line of defense. There, can't say that's the recommended course of action. But yeah, I I definitely wouldn't have the kid in the car. <laughs> Just adults talking out their feelings. This stays between us, dear. <laughs> <laughs> Got a big bowl of Smarties. We'll sit around and talk vehicular manslaughter. It'll be great. Uh, their marriage finally ended when Norrit discovered that Lustig had been keeping his longtime mistress at the same hotel. Uh oh. Yeah. Don't shit where you fucking eat. <laughs> <laughs> this man was bold. I mean, also don't cheat on your wife, uh, but definitely don't shit where you eat. Like, have a little class. <laughs> uh, the the cheating lesson is probably the most potent in this situation, but. Also, with the shitting and eating, you know, definitely don't want to be doing none of that. He's also a con artist. I don't have that much of a respect for his morals. I'm just going to assume that at the very least, he understands that it's a bad idea to have them at the same building. You just gotta understand that he probably sucks. He probably cheats on his taxes and cuts in line, and he just probably sucks overall. Uh, that mistress was Mae Scheibel, a blonde bombshell otherwise known as Billy, and Queen of Madames. But for reasons I have been unable to determine, Lustig's Wikipedia page identifies her as simply Billy May, written like the name of the guy who used to sell OxyClean for the Home Shopping Network. Well, maybe it's a reincarnation. You never know. That's, a, that's an important mission, <laughs> Jessica. It has to be done. The people must people know. People need their wine stains out of the carpet. And that was especially important during the Roaring Twenties. The police could get you for that. <laughs> That's a hefty ticket. During a financial dry spell, Lustig reached out to his old contact, Arnold Rothstein, who helped arrange a meeting with none other than the notorious mobster Al Capone. Lustig went into the meeting relatively underprepared, as Capone had their appointment moved up from two weeks to a mere three days after Lustig made his request. While Capone was initially skeptical, having been asked to meet with a man he had never heard of, he reportedly was quickly charmed, especially by Lustig's walking cane, which had a hidden compartment filled with wine. Capone apparently had his people inspect all walking sticks from then on. Just, you know, just in case there's a little something-something in there. Uh, Lustig presented himself as an experienced speculator looking for investment. Reports vary, but Lustig apparently asked for around forty dollars to $50,000, which he promised to double over the course of either the next two weeks or the next two months, depending on what your source is. Uh, he left the meeting mm. with a briefcase full of bills, which he left untouched, waiting until the appropriate amount of time had elapsed. He then returned the money to Capone, apologizing that his plans had fallen through. Capone, impressed with Lustig's, uh, honesty... Gave him $5,000 to compensate him for his trouble. It's impressive you can have that conversation with Al Capone and not only live, but walk away with money. Yeah, no, it's like, it's amazing he didn't end up with more holes than he started with. But the fact he walked away with yeah. any money is amazing. It's kind of superhuman, to be honest. Like, this guy has got horseshoes straight up his butt. 
Like, like at, at least a couple. Like, for every bend in his small intestines, he's got a horseshoe. There's a couple of them in there. Don't put him in an MRI, because he's going to destroy the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in 1922, Lustig approached the American Savings Bank in Missouri, claiming to be a dispossessed Austrian aristocrat and expressing interest in a decrepit farm the bank had recently repossessed so he could rebuild his life as a humble farmer. He offered $22,000 in Liberty Bonds in exchange for the farm and $10,000 in startup capital, and the bank, eager to have the property off their hands, readily agreed. On his way out, Lustig, through a, a little bit of sleight of hand, took not only the envelope of cash, but likewise the one containing the bonds. <laughs> When the, a team of private investigators tracked him down and arrested him, Lustig pointed out that if what he had done got out, it would likely result in a run on the bank. Not only did the investigators release him, they apparently paid him a thousand dollar bribe, possibly to acquire his silence on the matter. In 1925, Lustig traveled to Paris alongside French-American conman Robert Arthur Tourbillon. I like that he's got a little friend. He's got a little con artist buddy. Maybe they met at a little con artist convention. Like, they're, they got a little social circle. There's, like, panel discussions. Tourbillon was known by his street name, Dapper Dan Collins. Oh, that's way better. Lustig ran across an article discussing the sorry state of the Eiffel Tower. Nowadays, we see the Eiffel Tower as a triumphant emblem of Paris and all things French. <laughs> but when it was first built, it was somewhat controversial, with many critics calling it an eyesore. In fact, it wasn't even intended as a permanent structure. It was erected in 1887 as an entrance arch to the 1889 Paris World Fair, and intended to be demolished in 1909 when ownership of the tower transferred to the city. Plans were changed not due to any public outcry, but rather because it turned out to be useful as a radio tower in World War I. Uh, oh. Yeah. I, oh. They thought it was fucking ugly. They're just like, well, you know, we are the French. We are classy. We, we maintain a certain image, but we will allow ourselves to be represented by a large, unsightly pile of steel girders if we get good radio reception. Absolutely. <laughs> Priorities. It, it's basically the, the French version of Edmonton's giant pile of ball bearings next to the highway. <laughs> that is genuinely useless. <laughs> uh, the giant pile of, pile of ball bearings, while I don't think anyone has argued that it should be torn down, I'm pretty sure a lot of people would argue that it should never have been built. So. <laughs> it's also, like, next to a highway, so you can't even, like, admire it without, like, awkwardly, like, pulling your car over to the side of yeah. the highway and putting your hazards on. You just gotta drive by it and be like... Yeah, there's no shoulder there. That's weird. There's no place to park. No. Pass it by and you're just like, is that a dump site or was that a giant pile of ball bearings? <laughs> you're just like, I wonder if that was intentional as you drive by it. And it's just that every day of your entire life. And it's the one of the first things anyone coming to Edmonton from the North sees. You just, you drive into town. A giant shiny ball. And you just see like this giant... Giant set of stainless steel fucking balls. <laughs> and you just go like, huh. Glinting. Is that art or is that a sign of lax zoning? <laughs> is this Both. a dump? Both is good. <laughs> or is this a statement? 
Two things can be true, Jessica. Uh, the article discussed the poor state of maintenance on the tower, including signs of rust. Officials were struggling to fund repairs, and the author mused as to why the government hadn't simply sold it. While you might hear the strange evidence of the way in which aesthetic tastes and cultural values change over time, Victor Lustig heard the sound of a carelessly handled wallet falling to the ground. <laughs> he can sense it like a dog senses an earthquake. This is a man who, if you met, like mentioned your social security number out loud, his hearing suddenly becomes on par with a bat's. <laughs> Like, he can, like, he can, he's like a mosquito, but instead of carbon dioxide, he hunts based on the smell of money. You're not getting away from this man. No, absolutely. And he needs your money because he uses it for nutrients to develop his eggs. It's very specific. <laughs> I'm just making, I'm making a joke about mosquitoes. Just a bit of mosquito biology. We've already learned that giraffes are kosher, so. They are edible to the Jewish people. Some teachable moments tonight. If you are Jewish, you can eat as many giraffes as you want. God says, go and, ahead. Yeah, and, and don't make a cheeseburger out of them, out of their own milk. That's, oh, that's, that's so morbid. Well, that's, well, we do that with cows. That's true. Never mind. It's delicious. Yeah, it's, on. it's delightful. And Jewish people can't have it. It's like, that's the thing. It's like, they're not allowed to eat bats, <laughs> but like, okay. They're not allowed to eat bugs. Okay. It's like, fine. <laughs> And they're not allowed to eat, you know, shrimp, which is just, like, that's, that's always been, like, a bit of a controversy. Like, you know, they're sea bugs. But then, like, they can't have cheeseburgers, and that's, that's... How do you live? <laughs> Somehow I, I get the sense that this is not the worst injustice ever faced by the Jewish race. I don't know, I think it's pretty high up there. <laughs> Jessica's like, the people need bacon. There's just no <laughs> way around it. You know... <laughs> I'm just saying, you know, the Jewish people may have been through a lot, but, like, you know, you, you, when you gotta make a value judgment, the fact that they're not allowed to have cheeseburgers, it's just top of the list. We're just not getting past that. <laughs> it's like, why do you even, why do you, why even discuss number two, three, and four? <laughs> We're stuck here forever. Uh... Uh, Lustig had a local counterfeiter produce fake documents identifying him as the Deputy Director General of the Ministry of Postal Services and Telecommunications, which sounds odd, but it also just so happens to be the ministry in charge of public buildings. He then sent five metal salvage dealers throughout the city ambiguously worded but official-looking letters, inviting them to a hotel in order to make bids on a super-secret government contract. Every part of this is shady. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> like, who's responding to this offer? I've been part of the government before, and trust me, this is sketchy. <laughs> like, even, this is even early 20th century sketchy. Don't, don't accept these offers. Call the police. Imagine, just like, yeah, so I'm genuine, I'm from the government, I need you to meet me in a seedy hotel room to talk about buying a tower. Like, no, none of this is real. No. At the very least, you need to call up the Ministry of Postal Services and Telecommunications and ask the name of the Deputy General- Director General. <laughs> nah, he seems trustworthy. We'll take his word for it. It's fine. Who would just pretend to be the Deputy Director General of the Ministry of Postal Services? Who would do that? Which I mean- It's the perfect crime. Granted. Nobody. It's the perfect That's crime. That's why it's the perfect crime. <laughs> 
that genuinely. Also, most people have no idea how the government works, to be very blunt. Uh, Lustig had the meeting held in the well-established and exclusive Hotel de Crillon and rented a limousine to chauffeur representatives of the firms around Paris. He plied them with plentiful food and drink, and after lunch, he took them to the Eiffel Tower. There, serendipitously, they saw a construction crew, which Lustig explained were there to assess what would be needed to dismantle the tower, which was roughly 7,000 tons of iron. The crew was there, in fact, to make measurements and make estimates for the tower to be repainted. <laughs> I just like the idea of, like, these con men showing up with just, like, a really big wrench to be like, all right, this should do it. Like, let's take her down. Uh, Lustig then walked up to the tower, flashed his fake ID, and took the company representatives for a private tour. At least somebody's thinking ahead. If you are confident enough peop- and you're dressed right, people will just assume this is where you're supposed to be. Nobody questions you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was like when uh, J.K. Rowling had that plot point in her most recent book, question mark, where it's this serial killer who dresses like a woman in order to attack women, which has absolutely nothing to do with that thing where she keeps loudly talking about trans people in a weird way. No way. Uh, it has it definitely has no relationship to that. She uh, it, there's this one scene where like the it, it, it the, this man dresses up in a burqa in order to sneak into a building and kill a lady. And like I cannot imagine a more suspicious outfit in order to gain entrance <laughs> to a building. Here's the here's the thing. I am so used to just opening the door for random strangers like from from various food delivery companies that I essentially treat a a pizza box as a form of ID. Like, (laughs) (laughs) it's good enough for me. Like, if you're wearing overalls and carrying a slippery when while wet sign, like, I'm I'm not going to make, I'm not going to ask any questions. I'm going to forget you exist the moment I turn around. No, I assume you're just supposed to be there. But if you're delivering sushi in a full burka, I have questions. Never mind if you have shoulders like a fucking linebacker. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's gonna stand. That uh, that will haunt me for the rest of my life. I will remember. I will think of you to my dying day. That is gonna stick out in my memories, and I'm I'm definitely gonna remember what your eyebrows looked like. Oh, for sure. Even as like my Alzheimer riddled mind decays in my in my nursing home in my dotage, I'm gonna remember this shit vividly. I'm gonna tell my great grandkids <laughs> about it. <laughs> like, like that was weird that, that did anyone that was, else think that was weird that, that was, was weird. super weird <laughs> like, <laughs> like how are you delivering anything in that outfit <laughs> it is true though that like certain outfits just kind of get you a pass like i did mm-hmm. my thesis at like a drug court and i used to show up dressed fairly nicely and they just assume i was a lawyer they're like all right you're coming to cells you gotta talk to your clients so i was like oh no Oh no, that would ruin these people's lives. Uh, I need to stay out of it. I have always, let's just say I have resting office face. Like, how do I put this? Uh, Every time I have ever stood still for long enough in a dollarama, people have asked if I'm the manager. And (laughs) I don't know what that says about me, but it's fucking hurtful. And (laughs) you just got a face that says, as per my last email. I just, I just look like I have a dead-end job I take way too seriously. It, 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 it's so powerful, this aura. Like, no matter what building I am in, people assume I work there. Like, you know, no matter what I'm wearing. Like, uh, one time I was shoeless in my pajamas at a library. 
And like, people would walk up to me. They'd be like, uh, hey, do you work here? And I'm like, no. They'd stare at me like they didn't know what to do with that. And I'm like, what do you need? And they'd be like, do you know where the holds are? And I'm like, yeah, they're over there. <laughs> like, it's Just wandering up to a person with no shoes on in a library at three o'clock in the afternoon. And they're like, yeah, this screams employee. This is, yeah. this is a wise choice I'm making. No, like, it, there's just something about how I hold myself that just says I work here. And <laughs> I, don't, I don't know precisely what it is. In fairness, you could walk through a Home Depot in a different store's uniform, and I would be like, nope, she works here, for sure. Uh, back at the hotel, Lustig finally broached the matter at hand, telling his audience that after looking at the numbers, officials had decided to heed the criticism of the expensive upkeep and ugliness of the tower and sell the metal for scrap but that the deal needed oh. to be kept private until all details were worked out in order to avoid public backlash. Imagine, like, having a romantic Eiffel Tower tattoo and then listening to this podcast and realizing you have a large pile of scrap metal tattooed <laughs> on your body. It's just, it, it's a weird thing because, like, we have such a romantic understanding of it now. Oh, that's, that's where people, people get proposed to there, like, on the daily. That's the romantic spot. The worst thing is, like, you can have your proposal video with, like, eight other pr people getting proposed to in the background. You know, you're just getting photobombed by other people's love lives. It's a very romantic, teetering pile of scrap metal. In the early 20th century, these scrap dealers just found it completely plausible that they'd be selling it off as, like, you know, excess metal waste. They're just, like, hanging around the World Fair with a hacksaw, just like, I'm fucking ready. And, and here's the thing. Metal is very valuable. Unattended construction sites, you'll often just find them completely stripped of plumbing. That will, that'll be gone. Uh, Lustig collected bids from each of the men over the course of the next four days, but his primary interest wasn't on the size of the, of the bid, but rather the disposition of the men tendering them. He picked out André Poisson, an underconfident but eager newcomer to the business, whose name, I feel I must tell you, translates as Andrew Fish. Um. I'm glad that this information was shared with me. It will, <laughs> I will treasure it always. Uh, upon their follow-up meeting, however, Lustig was disappointed to find that Mr. Fish had cold feet, as Poisson hinted that his wife was suspicious of the deal. Lustig told him that, told him that was a shame, as Poisson had outbid his competition. He then confided that he had one more regrettable matter to discuss, and confided that he was but a poor, humble, undercompensated public servant, tasked with whining and dining the clients of the state, which Poisson understood as a clear request for a commission. Rather than scare him off, Poisson now assumed that he knew exactly what the grift was, a corrupt bureaucrat looking for a bribe. He paid Lustig an additional 50,000 francs on top of the 20,000 franc bid in return for a deed of the Eiffel Tower. Lustig and Dapper Dan immediately jumped on a ship bound for Vienna, where they lived in opulence while keeping an eye for any discussion of their brazen scheme on the news. They heard nothing, and Lustig concluded that Poisson had been too embarrassed to go to the police. Lustig therefore returned to Paris six months later to attempt the exact same scam, move for move, on another group of metal salvage dealers. <laughs> He's just like, it's a good plan, goddammit, it's gonna work. 
It's a classic. <laughs> it can't fail. Yet he again managed to get a mark to hand over money for the deed. But this time, the man in question went straight to the police. He was like, this is weird and I don't feel good about it. Goodbye. Well, I mean, he did also give him his money. but well, <laughs> Like, he did, he did in fact get scammed. But, like, he... He, he pretty quickly was like, yeah, no, fuck you. I'm still going to the cops, even if I look like an idiot. Uh, the affair was so fantastic. The news made the front page of several national newspapers, including a name and detailed description of the perpetrator. Presumably with, like, a deep description of, like, his smoky eyes and steady gaze. Uh, Lustig disappeared once more, again to the anonymity of New York City. In New York, Lustig had a cabinet maker fashion him a mahogany box with two small, thin openings on the top and the bottom. It was installed with dials and a brass crank and made to look far more complicated than it truly was. In either late 1925 or 26, Lustig made his way by train to Palm Beach, Florida. At his hotel there, he made quite the image, a sophisticated European count driven around town in a brand new Rolls Royce driven by a Japanese chauffeur. This netted him the attention of the entrepreneur Henry Lawler, whose business had recently taken a sour turn. Lawler was excited to have Lustig's attention, especially when Lustig confided that he was having business problems of his own specifically that the dastardly communists had confiscated his family fortune back in his home country, and he was struggling to start anew. We just go straight to commies did it. That's that's who gets blamed today. It'll be different next episode. Well, and the thing is, like, he's talking to an American, so, like... True. It's an easy way to pick an ideological group that's probably going to be unpopular with an American businessman. Fair. Uh, luckily, however, Lustig had a secret weapon. Upon Lawler repeatedly expressing curiosity, Lustig eventually relented and invited him back to his hotel room, where he showed him the box. Into the top, he inserted into one slot a $100 bill, and into the other a, pl a plain sheet of cotton paper. Lustig explained that the process would take approximately six hours for the chemicals to set into the cotton. He warned that opening the box early would ruin the image transfer. He brought Lawler back six hours later, turned the crank, and out popped two identical hundred-dollar bills. Oh. He even brought Lawler to a nearby bank, where the teller confirmed the bill's authenticity. Amazed, Lawler begged Lustig to sell him the box, which Lustig did to the tune of $25,000, over four hundred grand in modern currency. This will come as no surprise to you to know that U.S. currency, even back in the mid-20s, is too complicated to easily forge using some random chemicals and gear in a 12-inch wooden box. No. In fact, no, no chemicals were involved. Rather, the box was simply preloaded with a bill with the serial number altered to match. The six-hour waiting period was just to give the con artist sufficient time to escape before his mark cottoned on. Oh my god, but this is such an incredible amount of effort. Oh, and it's just, it's an incredibly dumb scheme. It's just, <laughs> like, at a certain point, you're okay. just waving your balls <laughs> in people's face. When you're knocking air holes in a mahogany box and you're like, this is a great plan, this is gonna work. No, you, no. 
Yeah, if you want to look this up on Wikipedia and learn more about the internal workings of the box, it, look up Ruminarian Box, or just Victor Lustig. You'll, you'll find it. But it's literally just a box with, like, two slots in the top that just, like, then pushes the paper out the bottom on one side and pushes a different paper out the bottom on the other side. Like, that's literally it's all like this is. It's like a really shitty ATM. Yeah. And, like, if you are a responsible human being, you will take one look at this and go, like, well, that's flagrant counterfeiting. <laughs> I definitely shouldn't do this. But, uh, yeah, some people are not that smart. There's just a lot of people in this world who, like, the only thing preventing them from doing something illegal is just lack of curiosity and, cre and creativity. <laughs> <laughs> they would if they could figure out how. Yeah, like, if anyone, like, strongly suggested it to them, they do it immediately. No hesitation, life of crime. None, yeah. Uh, Lustig successfully pulled off the same scheme in several other states, as well as unsuccessfully. At one point, one point, winding up in prison alongside the notorious leader of the terror gang and serial bank robber, John Dillinger. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's getting in just as much trouble as everyone else for, like, half the benefit. There's no way he's making that much money on this. It, it was more of, like, a boom and bust scenario where, like, he'd have a lot of money sometimes, but then almost nothing on others. Like, it's not a reliable way of getting money. It's very much a gambler's dream. There's always the excitement but then followed by an immediate crash because you don't know how to keep money. Like, literally, if he just was a bit more <laughs> responsible with it, he could have gotten away with, like, three or four of these schemes and just lived like a king for the rest of his life. But he was like, no, she haunts me. The Black Whale, the Eiffel Tower. Like, that's his Moby Dick. He's gonna hunt it till the end of time. Yeah, like, a part of this is just the rush. It really is. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, after getting out, however, Lustig was right back on his bullshit, heading to Oklahoma. He was only there for a few weeks, however, before he was arrested again for unrelated fraud charges. Like, he got arrested a lot. Don't think he was getting away with all this. If he'd put even half the effort into something legitimate, he would have been fine. Oh, yeah, he would have been very well paid. Because he, he's creative, he's fluent, he's charismatic. Like, literally all he needed to do was not to need crime to get his dick hard. <laughs> it's too much to ask, Jessica. It's too much to ask. But no, he was genuinely, like, someone who could have been very successful in literally any other line of work. He was just like, the world of accounting, she doesn't call to me. It's theft. Theft or nothing. Uh, Lustig immediately noticed that the arresting sheriff, S.R. Richards, was surprisingly suggestible and clearly impressed and in awe of his polite, well-mannered captive. Not a, great cur not a great trait you want in a police officer, where you're like, I've known you for two hours, and I'm pretty sure you're easily manipulated. That's worse. Yeah, you know what I like in an officer of the law? Of the law? Utter credulity. <laughs> yeah, I just want a, a, like, a man who's clearly a child. <laughs> I, I, not, only, not only do I want him to not understand lying, I want him to have a lack of object permanence. I want him to be surprised every time a criminal covers their eyes, then whips them back and goes, boo. Like, I... <laughs> I want him to be shocked and delighted every time he turns around and the prisoners are still real. <laughs> I, want a, I want a psychologically ruined child. <laughs> In the body of a man, yes. A, a normal thing to want. Yeah. And, I, and I want that man in charge of a prison. <laughs> This is so specific. 
He was so impressed, in fact, that he eventually let Lustig out of his cell and poured him a glass of confiscated moonshine. Which is, oh, you know, which is good. You know, sounds just start, illegal. That's super great. fucking illegal. Definitely the sort of thing you should do with a criminal. Uh, while Lustig s- sipped politely, the sheriff eventually became intoxicated. Richards told mm. Lustig that he was a frequent patron of Bourbon Street brothels in New Orleans. In particular, he was paying for the upkeep of a prostitute whose expensive taste had by then driven him into $25,000 debt. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Well, that complicates things. Yeah, The cop thing? Nah, nah, it doesn't pay well. Especially not if you're in love with a hooker. Lustig convinced Richards to retrieve the strange mahogany box he had been arrested with and proceeded to demonstrate its miraculous function. He then sold the box to the sheriff in return for his freedom and $10,000. I don't, okay, one, how nice is this box that it is worth $10,000 and, like, your job? Right? <laughs> like, what? what is this box made out of? Like, just solidified unicorn farts? Like, what is this made of? There's just, like, a deep human need to own a mysterious box that shits out money. <laughs> I'm I'm one step above a house cat, and it's not that big a step. Sheriff Richards uh, tracked Lustig down eight months later in his Chicago hotel room, where he shoved his gun in Lustig's face. Uh, Lustig calmly responded that perhaps there was some kind of mistake, some kind of problem with the mechanism, or some misunderstanding of the instructions, and he would gladly return the sheriff's money until they figured out the problem with the box. He... Sat there, fiddled with the box for a while, then, six hours later, presented Richards with some freshly printed $100 bills. Uh, Richards returned the $10,000 and let Lustig go. (laughs) Uh, He sold it to him twice. (laughs) Oh. I mean, the first time is his fault. The second time is the victim's fault. At a certain point, I just like, yeah, like it's still, it's still bad. It's still, it's still illegal. He still stole from you, but also like, fuck, dude. <laughs> uh, and in this vein, Richards was arrested a few weeks later on Bourbon Street for paying in counterfeit money. <laughs> oh, yeah. I guess that's where we were headed. As soon as he had access to large amounts of that, it was gonna get. It was gonna get used. Yes, like, a, like this, this was a man who I assume ended up an officer of the law on accident. Uh, not real good at his job. Just kind of, what else is there to do at the time? In 1930, Lustig partnered with engraver William Watts and chemist Tom Shaw in a large-scale counterfeiting scheme, using special inks that imitated the tiny green and red threads of legal tender to the untrained eye. With at least $100,000 in counterfeit bills released every month, they couldn't help but attract attention. At this point, you're not trying to steal, you're trying to crash an entire economy. This is so bad, you're going to end up devaluing the American dollar. Which it was a concern. Like, this isn't how you live large, this is how you get a personal appointment with, with Director Hoover. <laughs> you... The FBI will want to talk to you. You know? This is how you meet God, son. Lustig's lover and frequent face on reruns of the Home Shopping Network, Billy Mays, 
found out that he was seeing another mistress and had used her own Cadillac to take her rival on a romantic road trip in the winter of 1933. That is bold. In a fury, the famed face of OxyClean tattled on Lustig, telling the police his location. The Secret Service put a tail on Lustig for several months. At this point, Lustig was not the primary target of the authorities, but rather Watts, who was a known counterfeiter and thus a key suspect. Uh, They arrested Lustig in May 1935 on the Upper West Side of New York City. During interrogation, Lustig admitted without fuss that he was aware of the counterfeiting, but claimed that it was the work of Watts, and he personally had no involvement. He might have gotten away with it, if the agents hadn't found a small key in his wallet that led them to a locker at the Brooklyn Manhattan Transit Station in Times Square, which was full of engraving plates and a stack of bills totaling $52,000. Hmm. Just, you know, healthy little, healthy little rainy day fund. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's a lot of money. And you would not need that money for three men to live on. Even three men to live well on. I'm just saying, be a little bit more subtle. Also, don't counterfeit, but be more subtle about it. <laughs> if you're gonna do it, we'd rather you do yeah. it with proper technique. You know, and, and like, adult supervision. That's all we ask. Listing, like, I just think he needed so much of a rush that, like, he just keeps escalating to a point that cannot help but get him arrested. Like, he just works himself so far up the priority list that it's it's just... This doesn't hold up to scrutiny. One of the reasons why he was getting away with all this is this is a time and a place where, like, there's not a lot of interjurisdiction cooperation, even inside of country. Like, if you oh, commit no, no, a no. crime in New York, <laughs> no one in Alabama is hearing about it. No, you set foot outside your immediate town, and it is a clean slate for you, my friend. The cops do not talk to each other. One of the reasons why so much con artistry is rampant in this era is just because it's so easy to move around and escape the jurisdiction of your pursuer. You just, you take four steps over the county line and they can't do shit to you. Lustig was detained, but never one to let misfortune break his spirits. He developed a plan based on the fact that his attendants never bothered to keep track of the difference between the bed linens that went in and out of cells. Uh, Lustig saved nine additional sheets and hid them in a slit he cut into his mattress. Oh, goddammit. He then shredded and wove them into a rope. One day, during noon exercise, Lustig begged off and instead stuck into the third floor lavatory, cut the window wire with a stolen wire cutter, and climbed down to the ground floor, pretending to be a window washer for the sake of nearby pedestrians. This is so elaborate. (laughs) On his pillow, he had left a note which reads as follows. He allowed himself to be led in a promise. Jean Valjean has his promise. Even to a convict, especially to a convict. It may give the convict confidence and guide him on the right path. Law was not made by God, and man can be wrong. This is, of course, a quote from Victor Hugo's Les Miserables, because Lustig was nothing if not a dramatic bitch. (laughs) <laughs> I was going to say, I hope this isn't another direct quote from a police report, because some of them are in the wrong career, if this is how they write. Uh, Lustig remained at large for 27 days before he was finally tracked down and arrested after a wild car chase in Pittsburgh, giving in only after being foiled by a dead end, at which point he stepped out of the car, 
with his hands up and allowed himself to be taken peacefully. Lustig was labeled a high-priority escape risk and placed under additional surveillance. It's unclear why they didn't do that in the first place, seeing as he had sawed the bars off a cell in Indiana only a few years prior. <laughs> nah, that little lovable scamp, he wouldn't do that twice. We trust him. Yeah, he promised. <laughs> he pinky swore. <laughs> I was gonna say, we're on the pinky swear system around here, mister. <laughs> like... You better you better stay in your cell there, buddy. Oh, you, you <laughs> promised. Or I'm not gonna share my SpaghettiOs. Can you imagine, like... The absolute fucking armpit of the world you'd have to put a prison in for that to be the security system. Right. <laughs> like, you think it's bad in here? Wait till you see it's just fucking blizzards and bears out there. I think that was the, uh, that was the idea between most of the prisons in Ontario. Like, isn't Kingston like that? Kingston, no. yeah, Kingston had all the prisons, then they moved them to Edmonton. I firmly yeah. believe that being forced to move to Edmonton against your will is part of the punishment. Yeah, and that's where we keep all the, like, the really serious women convicts. That's sexist. Oh, yeah. They're all in Edmonton. Well, they're being punished yeah. with the concept of Edmonton. But I, I'm, I'm not actually trying to shit on Kingston, Ontario. It's just that, like, the logic of where they put it was just that, like, there's no way a convict can run all the way back to civilization from here. And it's basically just swamps and black flies all the way. <laughs> I don't know. You can swim back to the upstate New York from Kingston. It's not that great a location. I mean, it's a fine location for a city. It's a poor location for, like, eight prisons. But there was a lot of prisons there. That is an amazing oh, yeah. amount of prisons. At his trial in December 1935, the key witness against Lustig was revealed to be none other than William Watts. Ugh. Isn't it great when, like, the man you sold up river just turns on you, too? Ugh. Amazing. <laughs> Should have thought that one through. After a brief recess, Lustig pled guilty. Watts was sentenced to 10 to 15 years in prison, while Lustig was sentenced to 15 in the infamous prison island of Alcatraz. Oh. Uh, yeah, Alcatraz. But also, Watts, Watts, they didn't give him immunity for rolling over. They were like, no, you get the same sentence. Off you go. You would, you would assume he would have gotten a little bit lighter, considering. But, uh, no, apparently that was the best deal he was able to get. He should reconsider his lawyer. Maybe that was just part of its own reward, was that he gets to rat out this guy. In early 1947, as convict uh, number 300, Alistic complained of being sick. Medical attention was delayed, however, because he had, at this point, made 1,192 medical complaints over the last 11 years. When, when people realized that he wasn't faking, uh, he was eventually transferred to a nearby hospital and died at the age of 57. Oh. Yeah. Well, probably shouldn't have made a thousand fake medical complaints. Yeah, it's a little bit of it's a little bit of a boy who cried wolf situation. Where, you know, he just pretended to be sick over a thousand times, and then the time when he actually was, people told him to shut the fuck up. <laughs> a hard lesson in karma. Yeah, one that I don't think he actually got to profit from, unfortunately. Or fortunate. I have no idea. Alas. He died. But, uh, yeah. Oh. Victor Lustig. Probably. That's what a life. definitely not his the real man, name. The man. The myth. The legend. Mm. The poor life decisions. <laughs> the box. If, if nothing else, he serves as a lesson to us all. 
Mostly not to get taken in by men like Victor Lustig. And also to own a really nice box. Oh, with a really nice box you can get anywhere. Mahogany. <laughs> yes. <laughs> They'll pay you to set to put you out of jail. <laughs> Who knew? You just need a really nice box. That's all you need in life. A scheme, a box, and unwarranted self-confidence. Yeah, and also five languages. Whatever. Your best criminal accomplice is Duolingo. <laughs> that owl will fuck you up. Yeah, it's very aggressive. I, I, <laughs> I, I bet Duo could run, rob a bank. Without, without <laughs> question. Duo could murder a family. Duo don't care. Like, como estas? Blam, blam, blam. <laughs> <laughs> that has been this episode of Histories and Mysteries. We hope you've enjoyed this little palate cleanser. Uh, we're probably going to talk about dead people next. Murder, murder. But I have been Jessica. And I have been Janelle. <laughs>